Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning in on this episode and I will introduce our guest in a minute, but I want to mention right off the top of the hour here to uh, check out Theology Beer Camp, Theology Beer Camp, uh, one of the one of the largest sort of progressive Christian podcasts in America that is like a theological nerd paradise. It's it's for theological nerds. It's called Christianity or Homebrewed Christianity. Trip Fuller sponsors that, and he is putting on Theology Beer Camp this October, and it's in Springfield, Missouri, just just a couple hours away from Kansas City for all of those are listening in the Midwest, but I'd like to invite you to come out. There's going to be about 20 podcasters, about 20 theologians. Um, there'll be some uh, musicians there. Derek Webb's going to be there. Uh, um, let's see who else. Trey Pearson, uh, a couple of, a couple of different, uh, musician folks. And this is theology. That's not boring. I promise you. This is a this is a rambunctious crowd, fun theology, and uh, let me encourage you to join us. You can uh, go to my website, spiritualityadventures.com, and uh, there's a link there so that you can sign up for Theology Beer Camp. You can use the code SPIRITUALITYGODPOD and get $25 off your ticket, and uh, book, a, book a room down there. There's already a handful of people that I know that are joining me, and we're going to have a lot of fun over a three-day period, October 19th through the 21st. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. And today, I'm excited to introduce you to Nick LaPara. Nick and I just actually recently met in this last year. We hung out in uh, Telluride, Colorado over Memorial Weekend at the Mountain Film Fest. And I, I had a blast hanging out with Nick and the whole, the whole crowd. One of our common friends that introduced us is, is Rod Colburn. And Nick is currently in, in Harlem right now. Well, are you, are you in Harlem located in Harlem? Right I'm now? actually downtown Manhattan right now, union square okay. right now, yeah. downtown Manhattan. And honestly, Nick has an amazing story. Um, so I'm excited for him to, to, for you to get to know him, hear his story, his background, and then what he's doing now. He actually hosts a podcast and does a bunch of humanitarian work and is a speaker, activist, and his podcast and and uh, and activist stuff that he does is called Let's Give a Damn. Let's Give a Damn. So welcome, Nick, to the podcast. Thanks for joining us at spiritualityadventures.com. So happy to be here, Fred. Thanks for the invite. And I will say that meeting you in Telluride of all places, of all backdrops was a great, it's a great place to meet people because you can't help but feel great about the people you're with, the food you're eating, the films you're watching. It's just a beautiful setting. So it was great to meet you. So much fun. 
and uh, my new friend, common friend, uh, was the the master chef, right? Uh, Samir Salmanovich. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh, that was a treat. The food treat. was incredible. I mean, it felt yeah. like we were, you know, <laughs> eating eating Michelin star food every day in our in our little rented cabin. Yeah, the little rented cabin, right? Yeah, I think I think Rod was thinking. I I bet you this thing was an eight million dollar cabin or something <laughs> it was massive it was amazing all right well well give us some of your background like where did you grow up give us give us your family background your spiritual background kind of give us a feel for for nick and his growing up years thank you for asking um i was born in upstate new york rochester to be specific my dad is a guatemalan immigrant came to the US when he was a kid. My dad actually was fleeing. So I moved to Guatemala when I was a kid. I was nine years old. When I when we moved there, it was the tail end of a 40 year civil war that began when my dad left as a kid. So he left a war, he left because of the war. So technically he was a war refugee, but leaving sort of the violence that was happening in Guatemala. And then I moved later on in the last three years of that war. So very interesting sort of timing and parallel there. But I was born in upstate New York to, uh, yeah, my immigrant father and my Italian-American mother in Rochester, New York. I'm one of 12 kids. I'm the second oldest, so I'm near the top. And my brother was, I always joke, and he's in on the joke, but my older brother, the oldest, was not really present for most of uh, the years where he should have been taking care of us and taking responsibility as an older sibling. He was off uh, chasing girls and doing a lot of things he shouldn't have. And so I had to assume so many of those responsibilities. Um, so I felt like the oldest most of my life, which was fun. I like those sorts of things. Um, yeah, one of 12 kids. I grew up in a very fundamentalist, conservative Christian environment. My dad grew up nominal Catholic, so did my mom. And he was uh, evangelized to by a very fundamentalist conservative Christian. And it was a point in my life when my dad had sort of hit rock bottom. And so he was desperate for help. And this guy was there uh, really preaching a a gospel, not of not a joyful gospel, not a free a gospel full of freedom, but one of here are a lot of rules. Here are the things we must do and say and not do and not say and how to dress and how to do this and how many times going to church every week. It was that sort of a gospel that my dad was introduced to. And for some reason during that time in his life, like he sort of got lured in. And so the upbringing was quite um, unpleasant in so many ways. One of the key parts of my upbringing, um, and my dad is thankfully, uh, a changed man now. But growing up, he was quite abusive because he he grew up being abused. And then when you are brought into a community or a cult, I should say, that doesn't isn't pursuing uh isn't wanting to see you change, isn't wanting to see you become more like Jesus, but rather just obey the rules and kind of fit into the system that we've created. They didn't care about 
the anger issues he had, the trauma that he had experienced and what that would mean for his family. They just cared. Are you wearing the right clothes? Is your hair short enough? Are you listening to the right music? How many times you go to church this week? And so what that resulted in was a pretty uh, abusive environment for us to grow up in uh, physically, verbally, emotionally, and spiritually. Again, I I always want to caveat or add that he is not that man anymore. Thank God. Things are totally different. I'm very proud of my father for the changes that he has made. And I'm very proud that he gets to be a grandfather to my, my kids now. But back then, it was not so pleasant. So that sort of shaped a lot of our upbringing because there was just a lot of fear. Um, I've always been uh, quite the big mouth uh, saying things that maybe I should not say in certain situations. And so I got the brunt of a lot of the abuse because while my other siblings learned to stay quiet, to, you know, to slink off in the shadows and stay out of his, you know, his destructive path. I always put myself in it for some reason, which meant that I just got knocked around quite a bit more than the others. And, but, you know, later on in life, it became apparent why that was like, I'm, I'm a lot like my dad. We, we sort of, we do a lot of the same things. We think a lot of the same ways. And so I guess it was natural that we uh, were always butting heads and getting in each other's ways. Um, but I also remember a lot. I remember if anyone's listening and had sort of an, an abusive upbringing, maybe you'll identify with this. Maybe you won't. I still found, we all still found moments where I still have very fond memories. There were, there was a lot of joy at the same time when, when things weren't, when we weren't walking on eggshells and when there wasn't abuse around us, there were a lot of great pizza movie family nights. There were a lot of great trips that we went on. There were a lot of hugs and kisses from my dad. There were a lot of, there was a lot of joy in our family, despite whatever percentage of time that we had to walk on eggshells. Maybe that was a a survival tactic that we sort of deployed to like stay sane, like, hey, we've got to find the good stuff. But um, yeah, there were still so many great moments. I wouldn't trade my upbringing. So I was in Guatemala from nine to 19. We moved there as, unfortunately, it wasn't for a really great reason. It was to become evangelical missionaries, which really meant that we ended up hanging around for 10 years with a lot of white savior mentality missionaries. And we became that. That was the work that we did was really bringing American evangelicalism to the already amazing, completely fine on their own Guatemalan people. So I regret that. I regret being a part of that. It was not, it was out of my control, but I don't regret it all growing up in Guatemala. It was very hard. It was difficult. Like I said, we we were there during the tail end of a 40-year civil war in the late nine, 1990s. And I guess that's that's implied, just the 90s. I don't have to say 1990s. In the late 90s. Um, and I so I we experienced a lot of, we saw a lot of violence growing up. I unfortunately have seen people murdered right in front of me. I've seen people get kidnapped. I was telling Fred earlier that there was a kidnapping attempt on my brother and I. Um, yeah, it was a very like a very interesting upbringing, but I I grew so much during those years. I became strong, resilient uh, during those years. I can put up with a lot of crap because of my upbringing. Um and I don't wait around for permission. I think because of my upbringing, 
I, if I want something, I go and pursue it. Even if I fail at it, I go, I'm not waiting for anybody to tell me I can or cannot do that. Um, it was a beautiful, I'll end there and let you ask any questions, follow up questions you have, but it was a really, it was a beautiful, hard upbringing, which really is, I mean, that's, that's humanity, right? Like right. we have, we have our ups and our downs. We have, and again, now I will, I will just wrap up by saying this. There have been suicide attempts in our family among my siblings. There has been, there have been divorces. There have been substance abuse. There have been all sorts of issues that one would have with 12 kids and two parents that grew up in an abusive environment. But all these years later, my family, my, my like close nuclear family is now 33 or 34 people. All 12 siblings are still alive and well. Eight are married or have partners now. There's 11. We have 11 kids amongst us, and that number is growing. And once or twice a year, we all get together, all of us, to hang out. And we can hang out. We have political differences. Upwards of half my family voted for Trump at least once in the last um, two election cycles. We have how we raise our families, differences. We have all sorts of differences. But through that crazy journey of growing up overseas and the coming back to the States and all of that stuff, the ups and the downs, the divorces, the losses, we have stuck together. So that's why I can't regret anything that ever happened because it got me here where I can call my dad now all these years later and we can talk and we can laugh. And he asks me for advice. He calls me one of his most trusted confidants. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Like you used to beat me and I used to hate you. And now we're here. <laughs> We're like, we're, we're friends. We're friends. He's 65. I'm about to turn 40 and we're friends. Like that's, it's quite the miracle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so despite all of that, uh, that, that environment of abuse, you still ended up adopting some of those evangelical beliefs. Is that right? And, and felt, felt called in some way or another to be a, what, to, to be a ministry or a pastor. Yeah. Give us give us that. How did how did that that next phase of like embracing the the evangelical ethos, get involved in in evangelical ministry, that kind of thing? Yeah, I don't take it when I said earlier that I grew up in a cult, I mean that in almost every sense of the word. Because what you're alluding to is so many people. <laughs> would have, should have, did leave their faith after experiencing so much abuse in the name of faith. And I, because it was sort of a cult-like mentality that took me years to get out of, I didn't think leaving was a possibility because all that, there was nobody telling me that it was possible. We had, we had, we had walled off all the corners of our lives that would have allowed any outside exterior voices in. So even once I started leaving and like trying to get out of what I was experiencing as a kid and as a teenager, I still didn't think like, to me, it was like, okay, that was bad. That was shitty. That was not okay. But like, there's gotta be a better version of it somewhere. So I didn't leave. I just tried to find a better version of it. And that's really what the next from, I left home, I left Guatemala at 19 and from 19 to 
um, very early 30s, so about 12, 13 years, it was a series of decisions and moves and jobs, mostly in ministry, that were me trying to find a much better version of what I experienced growing up. Uh, that includes, you know, working for probably the, the the longest stint that I had was working for four years with a pretty unknown person named John Piper. I spent four years in Minneapolis. So right after getting married, I got married when I was 25. She was 21. And we moved to Minneapolis because at that point, again, in my mind and in my heart, hey, John Piper, this joyful gospel that John was preaching was the way out of what I was experiencing, which felt like very constrictive, 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 constricting, felt very tight, felt very like, I can't get out of this. It felt like desiring God and John Piper was an answer to that. Maybe not the answer, but it was an answer. And that was right around the time that I started reading John's books. The one that impacted me the most, even though I have completely 100% left that theological framework behind, there's a book that changed my life that he wrote called Don't Waste Your Life. He meant something different by Don't Waste Your Life. But right, what I yeah. took from that is I've only got one shot at this. And I'm not promised the next five minutes. I could fall dead during this interview. None of us are promised the next five minutes. So that idea of don't waste your life radically changed my life still to this day. I have, John, to thank for that because that came at a very pivotal moment in my life when I needed to realize that not one minute goes to waste. We, I've, I've got to I've got to be intentional about how I live my life, which again, years and years later, became one of the foundational reasons why I formed Let's Give a Damn. But I spent four years in Minneapolis at Bethlehem Baptist Church, at Desiring God, producing their conferences, helping make their content. I was leading worship at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I even preached one time with John Piper on the front row in the audience. I was an elder in training. Like I was in, I was in. People were very surprised at how quickly I got in. And I was, I just assumed at that point that I would continue to go down that path. And that was my new world. This was my new existence. It felt free. It, it's not free. I can say that clearly now in retrospect. It's not a very freeing theology or way of life. But at the time, it felt much more free than what I was experiencing. I ended up, we ended up leaving there and moving to um, just south of Seattle, Washington, to another uh, church planting network ministry group called SOMA. But the thing that led to that move was me realizing alongside my partner, Rebecca, that it just felt like these people here at Bethlehem, John Piper, Desiring God, like they just keep, it's all about learning new stuff. It's all about reading more books, learning deeper theology. Those of you that are listening can't see like my arms, but I got my first two tattoos, which were two Bible passages in Greek and Hebrew right on my forearm, because it was such a, it was such a world of like, learn more, learn more, go deeper, go deeper. But I never saw anybody take anything they learned and actually went out there to like hang with people, to like help our unhoused neighbors, to feed people, to care for immigrants. I never saw that happening. It was just learn more, learn more consume more, go deeper, but they never actually did anything with it. 
and I know that's I'm I'm being very exaggerative there. I'm sure some little things were happening, but by and large, if you went to the, like the the schedule for the church every single day, it from sunup till sundown, it was class after class after class. You'd have soccer moms learning Greek and Hebrew. Like nothing wrong with a soccer mom learning Greek and Hebrew, other than that soccer mom probably would have her time would have been spent more wisely actually hanging out with her mom neighbors or the, the, you know, the moms of the kids at the school or the dads, like hanging out as families versus like learning more Greek and Hebrew. So I left that environment, thankfully, and moved to Washington state to work with a group called Soma and Soma felt again, felt a little more free, but it ended up being just a beer drinking cigar smoking version of desiring God. They, uh, the, the bill of goods that they were selling was like, we go out there and like, we go make disciples. We go out there and we be the light of Jesus to these people, but it still had the same legalistic mentality. And it was very up until, up until that point, all the groups I, I was changing. So part of me was changing. I was reading books. I was getting to know people. I was become, I grew up in a very homophobic, sexist environment. And I felt myself becoming less sexist and less homophobic, but the environments around me were not. Mm. And I, and that, I would say the, the homophobia that I saw now it's at, at desiring God, it was very blatant. It was, if you're gay, you're wrong, period, full stop, beg God to change you. At Soma, it was less of that. It was more like, hey, we're, like, we're cool with you. Like, come hang out with us. You can be in our small groups and this and that. But the the trap door at the back was like, but at the end of the day, we hope you repent of your, your the, the sin of homosexuality, right? But it was very back door. It was like, let's drink and let's eat and let's hang out first. And then we'll try to convince you that the way that you're living is wrong. And I started waking up to the fact that there's zero wrong with like who you are is who you are whether you're straight or gay or whatever it is, like you are like, God loves you just as you are. So I had to get out of that environment as well. So that led me after three and a half years there, we moved and we're, we're, we're inching closer to the current day. We moved to Nashville for four years and that was to be closer to family. We didn't want to move to the American South, but that was like a cool city, right? Quote unquote, that was the coolest city in the South that we could still like, yeah, it's a it's a blue it's a blue bub, a blue dot in a very you know big sea of red. So we'll move to Nashville, and um, it was there that it was there that two things happened. One was it was it was there that I tried to leave my faith altogether. I threw away hundreds of books because I didn't want anybody else to read them. I and I tried <laughs> to leave. I tried, I mean, like there was all these like RC Sproul and jump. And I was like, I don't want to give these away because this, this is, this is bullshit. So I like literally would like, I destroyed them. And for, for the next two, two this years, burning. <laughs> I, yeah, for, for, I, hopefully I saved some minds and hearts and lives that way. But I tried for two years to leave my faith and Fred, I couldn't like, I tried. I don't know if I don't know if I was seeking to be an atheist or an agnostic or I just wanted to leave the Christian faith altogether because I had seen and this was around the time so this was to to put a timeline on it this is 2016 17 18 something big happened in 2016 that really uh, we don't have to get into that because that would be another hour <laughs> but some big stuff happened 2015 16 17 that really made me want to leave the faith altogether I was 
I was so happy to find a small Anglican parish in Brentwood, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. Father Danny Bryant was the parish priest there. And Danny has become one of my closest friends. And Danny saved my faith life. Because Danny, again, yeah, Father Danny Bryant at St. Mary of Bethany Parish. Because this is where you also met my my uh, colleague from years ago, Todd Hunter. Is that right? Yeah. So Todd eventually like moved from California to Nashville, and huh. St. Mary's has since then left the ACNA for okay. a lot of for a lot of reasons. I'll just leave it mm-hmm. at that. But um, in St. Mary's taught me a, I'll tell this quick story and then I'll wrap up and you can ask any questions. So I, I, I'm trying to leave my faith. We moved to Nashville, obviously like the belt buckle of the Bible belt. I mean, churches on every street corner. I mean, there's just faith stuff and Christian stuff everywhere. You can't go into a coffee shop without hearing, you know, Christian radio blaring. Such a weird environment to live in and to exist in. And all the churches that I've been a part of were very, like, very loud, very intense, you know, 45-minute sermons, big music, big noise, big everything. Everything was big. Everything was loud. And one of my friends said, hey, you've got to, I know you're feeling this and that way about your faith, but, like, you've got to go check out St. Mary's in Brentwood. And so I went down there one, one Sunday afternoon. They had, they had their mass at 4 p.m. And I walk in, and I've never felt this in my life, Fred, but I felt peace on my skin. Like I felt it on my body. Mm. I've felt peace before, but I felt peace. Mm. And for the next hour and a quarter, it was just this incredibly beautiful, peaceful, meditative sort of, yeah, Sunday mass. And again, I had always been around these like big mega church, like, very alpha male types, right? Always got something going on, you know, get with my secretary, she'll schedule you, right? That sort of environment. And so I went up to Danny after the priest, he's greeting people at the door. And I said, Danny, we're moving to Nashville. A friend recommended I come here, really enjoyed it. We'd love to get coffee and just hear your story and get to know you and how St. Mary's came about. And I fully expected Danny to say some version of, Hey, I'll have, what's your email? I'll have my secretary get in touch with you. Um, And then, you know, I would wait three days. The secretary would get in touch with me and she would say, uh, two weeks from now, Danny can meet for 30 minutes on a Thursday, right? Like, cause that's just how, that's how it had been for all of my life. And Danny, there was no secretary. There was no assistant. It was just Danny. And he said, how's tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.? And I literally started crying right in front of him. And he was like, what's going on? And I was like, you don't know what that means to me. You don't know what that means to feel like seen on the first try, not down the road, not once I've done a bunch of shit for you and worked tirelessly volunteering, but like right away, you have no idea who I am and you want to have coffee with me like 16 hours from now (laughs) blew my, blew my mind. So that sort of, that began the next phase, which we can wait you know, a bit to talk about, but that began the next phase of my life where, which was the last five years where I began to reframe what it means to be a person of faith, sort of try to reclaim some of what 
MAGA culture and white evangelicals had taken from mm. this true faith that Jesus left us. So that, yeah, that's been the last five years, which is a whole, whole mm. other episode. Wow. 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 Was your wife tracking with you basically at, at the same spe- speed of like, sort of like, you know, evaluating all of that? And then yeah, not at moving- all. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. The short, the short version of that is that she got equally hurt and burned by the church. She has very little interest in being a part of it anymore. She still wants there to be something there. And she's still like, she still believes in God and knows that something bigger is happening in the universe but she's not convinced that any of us are getting it right. And so, for example, yeah, a lot of my work still is interacting with very progressive churches, but with, with very progressive leaders of faith, even in those circles, she's just not that interested. And I have, and I'm totally fine with that as a now, hopefully lifelong universalist that is going to work with all kinds of people of faith, because I believe we're all headed to the same place in this current framework. I have no interest in trying to convince my kids of anything. I still teach them if they want to know what I believe and I still teach them good things, many of them being principles of faith. But I just have no interest, Fred, in trying to, you know, pull my partner and my kids along in this thing. Like I'm where I'm at. I'm actually by this time next year, I'll be even though I'm a very very provocative progressive person, I am currently in the process of switching from the current denomination that I'm ordained in to become an Anglican priest. And so in about a year, I'll be, I should be an Anglican priest, not to oversee any specific congregation, um, but to, for whatever percentage of my life, to be able to lead people in that way while still doing all the let's give a damn stuff. But that wasn't your question. My wife is not tracking and I'm completely fine. No, she is tracking, but she's in a whole different place than me. And we're like, we have lots of conversations where we're like, we're good. We're good. Everybody good. Okay, cool. And our relationship is stronger than ever since I stopped trying to convince anybody, especially my life partner to like be on the same page as me. I'm just not interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's, it's interesting when, when you go through these kinds of, uh, you know, sort of major reorientations, in life and you're married and you have kids, you know, that that's such a, a chat, especially if you're not moving together, it can be kind of interesting and challenging and stuff like that. But yeah. So, yeah. So let's jump in to um, like who maybe give me one or two key philosophers or theologians that influenced you into this new to the, to where you're at now. Like when you met Danny and then you're, you know, you're rethinking your faith, who, who are a couple of people that, that influenced you to, to, to kind of move you to where you are now. And then let's, let's talk about moving to New York, uh, starting, let, let, let's give a damn, let's start, let's start getting into some of your current passions, but, but give us who, who influenced you. Two people. 
Danny, I will say of, of someone that I know and can talk to any time, Danny Bryant has changed my life. Danny <laughs> loves Jesus hey, and hey. loves the world. Nick, look who's calling me right this minute. Rod, leave. We're trying to talk here. <laughs> That's amazing. Let me, let um, me see if. Hey. Hey, Rod. Is this Colorado? I'm, I'm sitting in your house right now doing a podcast interview with Nick LaPara. You are interrupting our podcast, <laughs> Rod. You're, you're, this is live. This will this will come out on the podcast now, Rod. So you'll we have gotta to keep it in. listen to one podcast in your life with me and Nick. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do it. All right, we'll call you back. <laughs> I'm having dinner with Nick. Tonight? Yes, I'm going to see Rod tonight here. Yes, well, dang. On the west side. Dang, I need to join you. I'm I'm having I'm having dinner with uh, Howard and Chris tonight. All right. Look at all these great connections. Love Howard and Chris. All right. Take care. Give them, give them my love. All right. Bye. <laughs> Sorry, that's amazing. That's our common friend, Rod Colburn, who lives in Manhattan. Nick lives in Harlem. I'm sitting in Rod's place near Telluride right now doing a writing retreat. I've been writing for seven, eight days in a row, but wanted to get doing this interview now with Nick. So anyway, and we're, I'm going to see Rod tonight <laughs> along with Doug Padgett. Oh, um, we're having we're having supper at uh, actually, I, you know, I talked about Georgia earlier in the other questions that you asked earlier on uh, Eastern Europe, Georgia, not Marjorie Taylor Greene, Georgia. And um, we're actually going to a Georgian restaurant tonight before they go to a Jackson Brown concert. Um, so a lot of great connections here. I'll see Doug here in a sweet, few hours. Sweet, sweet. That'll be fun. So the two that come to mind right away, besides Danny Bryant, are Dorothy Day and Wendell Berry. Oh, wow. Dorothy Day is my potentially Dorothy Day is if I have a patron saint, it's Dorothy Day, who Mm. was a Catholic uh, socialist anarchist, like just a badass theologian living, living Jesus and theology out loud here in New York City, um, just loving people in extraordinary, extraordinary ways. So Dorothy Day is a massive example for me. And Wendell Berry, uh, whose career started in New York City as a high-powered businessman and then gave all of that up to go live an agrarian life in rural Kentucky. Wendell has taught me so much about, as someone who loves the city and loves the concrete, like I would any day of the week, if you say, let's let's walk through... Um, the most amazing woods, or let's walk through the you know the most amazing forest, or let's walk through Manhattan. I'm going to choose Manhattan every single day. I love cities, and I know that there's a part of me that I, I'm still unleashing and letting go because I think every human has it that connects so deeply with nature and needs it to live and needs it to thrive. And there's nobody in my mind, nobody alive that teaches us better how to connect with the grass and the sun and the wind and the plants and the leaves and growing our own you know, fruit and produce than Wendell Berry. There's no mm-hmm. one that connects me to the earth more than Wendell. And so I would That's say good. if there's yeah, two people, Dorothy Day and Wendell Berry and Father Danny Bryant. That's awesome. That's all. I, I, you know, I, it makes me want to dive in more. I've, I've read 
you know, from both of those and loved it, but haven't done a deep dive on either one of those two people. So cool. I love that. Okay. So let's, so you move at what, what, when did you move to Harlem? We moved uh, to New York city, to Manhattan, specifically to Harlem in um, 20 early 2021. So we were supposed to move in early 2020 and the month we were supposed to move was when the pandemic happened. And obviously for anybody paying attention, New York was the epicenter of the COVID virus for the first few months. So it, it would have been very foolish uh, slash damn near impossible to move to New York city in those first few months. So I'm glad we, we decided, man, I think maybe we can do it. We decided not to, that was a great decision. So we waited till the next end of the school year to move. So we've been here for two years in a few months. And you, your podcast is called let's give a damn, but you do not just the podcast, but humanitarian work. Um, give us, give us kind of a, a picture of what you're doing now through let's give a damn where, what, what you've done up to this point, but also, uh, where you see it headed. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So when Trump was elected in 2016, that's when I started, let's give a damn partially because he was elected, but I had just left my, uh, my last my first career was 15 years in the nonprofit slash ministry space. My last gig ended in 2000. Oh, I left it in 2016 and really with no, no plan and not that much money in the bank because nonprofit. A year before that, when I was still squarely in that last job, I woke up one morning and the phrase, let's give a damn was on my mind. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it would become. I have I had no idea why the hell it came there, but it was there. So I got the social media handles, bought the domain, and let it rest. Just let it marinate for a year. I had no idea what it was, what it was going to do. I leave that job in 2016. That's also when we moved to Nashville. I had to figure out how to make money and also, but even more than that, because I've never like more than the money was what am I supposed to do right now? Like, what am I, what is the universe needing me and wanting me to do right now? And so I'd always been a fairly uh, solid communicator, a great question asker. And so I decided at that point, Hey, a, a very cheap way to make content would be to do a podcast. And this is before every, every other dude had a podcast out there. Uh, this is, you know, seven years ago when I decided to start formulating this plan. So I started, I hired a producer friend of mine and we, um, yeah, I started asking a few friends that were damn givers. And I define a damn giver as someone who lives an absurdly intentional and ethical life. Someone who is seeking, trying to be fully human. That's a damn giver. And so I found a few damn giver friends and I started interviewing them. And again, I had, at that point, it was just like kind of a hobby, but also to like figure out what I wanted to do next. Early on in that process, um, one of my friends asked their friend and the co-founder of their company, Rain Wilson, who has now become a great friend and mentor. And I love Rain and his family. But you know, at that point, this was like, you know, just a few years after the office was over. So it's still bigger than ever, but it was, you know, Rain was very much in, you know, a household name. And she asked Rain if you come on the podcast. So this was like episode, this is in the first 10 episodes, very early on. 
So I flew out to Rain's house in LA. We did the podcast. It was super fun. Rain was like, anything you need, like, I love what you're doing. Let me know if I can help. So that having Rain on in the first like 10 episodes really helped me from there on out use, I'm a pretty convincing person anyway, but that really helped me pitch some bigger guests from there on out. Fast forward to now, you know, we've got 260 episodes, actually 258 releases today with two moms in Tennessee that are part of an organization that's fighting against Cameron Sexton and the Republican caucus that are actively uh, stopping bills and measures to that will legislate great, you know, gun safety and gun legislation. And so there, so that one's coming out today to talk about the whole special session that Governor Bill Lee called. And that's out today. So 258. Um, along the way, early on, probably in the first 30, 40 episodes, I realized this is something. This is more than just a podcast. And so I started really bringing all of the work that I was doing under the Let's Give a Damn umbrella. Up until that point, I was doing a lot of consulting and coaching, you know, uh, uh, you know, marketing, storytelling, branding, communications. I was doing a lot of that. And I decided to bring all of that in-house. And so for the past few years, it has been me uh, mostly failing and sometimes winning, uh, trying to figure out what this let's give a damn thing is. I actually listened to a podcast yesterday with between Rich Roll and uh, my friend Baratunde Thurston about real community, community versus audience and storytelling that is absolutely flipping my world upside down right now and making me realize some of the very, very evident, the very clear ways that I have not built like proper community uh, mm -hmm. over the past few years. So like, I'm currently like, this is a great and a terrible day to catch me because my brain is all over the place. Like I feel like I went to bed last evening feeling just very like existential dread. Like what, what did I waste the last six years of my life building it this way? And I haven't, and it's all a great journey, but, but I'm currently rethinking a lot of things right now based on that conversation. But over the past few years, yeah, we have, I do, I still do a lot of coaching and consulting under let's give a damn helping. I've, I have consulted with fortune 500 companies and CEOs and CMOs and entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders to help them think more critically and intentionally about their social impact. I've uh, spoken on a lot of great stages around the world. Very honored to do that as well. And then more recently, as I said, I have been I said early on as I'm currently pitching a few uh, TV projects with a few different amazing groups that have asked me to pitch stuff with them. So we're, I'm currently working on two unscripted uh, TV projects and one scripted one. Who knows if they'll go anywhere, uh, but that is taking up a bunch of my time and giving me a lot of joy because I think there's something there. But yeah, and trying to build, again, the last sort of arm of let's give a damn that I'm currently still trying to figure out is like the consulting's great, the podcast is great, working on TV projects, that's all fine and dandy. But my goal, like I still haven't achieved what I wanna do with let's give a damn, which is to build true community and by true community, because I have an audience, but I don't have a community. And that is enabling people. Like a community is when people can start doing things on their own. Yes, there's an attraction point. They're all railing around, let's give a damn and trying to have a greater impact. But true community comes when I can not even be the central focal point and people start doing stuff and they start giving a damn and they start helping each other and they start mobilizing all on their own. That's 
I think when you know that you've kind of sort of formed a true community. And so I'm working on that slowly, but surely. Cool. What, what's the name of the person that, that, that Rich was interviewing? So Rich, yeah. Rich Roll podcast, uh, Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde um, wrote an amazing book called How to Be Black. Um, he also worked, used to work at The Onion. Um, and now he, oh, wow. he has his own TV show on PBS. Um, he has a great podcast that you need to listen to called How to Citizen. Citizen okay. is a verb. And uh, which I, I agree, like to be a citizen, that like citizen is a verb. And so how to citizen is a great platform that does. It's a it's a it's a similar to let's give a damn. We're trying to help mobilize people toward action. So definitely check out how to citizen. OK, cool, cool. Um, so when you when you go out and speak, you have I was looking at your website. You've got a few uh, topics that are kind of near and dear to your heart. Of course, how to give a damn how to live a meaningful life, power of less, first in, last out, laughing loudest. These yeah, are that's, some of the that's, things. That's a leadership talk. That's a leadership okay. talk based, based on a phrase from um, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a phrase in there that king, the king uh, talks, he's describing a leader. He's describing a king, which I believe is a leader. And it's the first one in, the last one out, and the one that helps people laugh the loudest. That's huh. what a that's what a true leader is. So I developed a talk around that. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So um, you've done some. You've had some big big guests on your podcast too. I I noticed. Uh, well, you've talked about uh, Chelsea Clinton, but you also uh, got to do an interview with Matthew McConaughey. I just finished his uh, Green Lights Green Lights memoir yep. because I'm. I'm working on a memoir and I was trying to, you know, go through a couple of them that, um, yeah, just to try to see how they did it. And that kind of, that, that was, that was really a fun. He's got such a fun personality, you know? Definitely. Yeah. I've had the, I've had the privilege. Uh, uh, I, I, I find myself sometimes look in the mirror and I'm like, man, you're so lucky. Like you're the, you're the son of a poor immigrant that grew up with nothing, no connections, no anything grew up outside the country, came back and had nothing to go off of. And here you are like, you know, talking to these just really incredible people, you know, Chelsea's become, you know, a friend I've interviewed her like four, I'll see her again this next month at, are we in September yet? No, at the, the Clinton Global Initiative here in New York and always love connecting with her. And yeah, Matthew McConaughey, Priyanka Chopra, Jonas, um, incredible, like best-selling authors. And it's been really fun to, you know, my, my, the reason I have them on, yes, it's fun to talk to them. Don't take me wrong. I love talking to these people. I love to have them on so that more eyeballs and ears come into my sort of ecosystem. So that when I bring on someone that doesn't have a platform at all, but should be well-known because they're incredible and they're doing amazing work. Um, there's more people listening to their story. So yes, it's fun to talk to Priyanka Chopra Jonas, who has 200 million social media followers, right? Like that's amazing. She's one of the most famous people on the planet. And really my, my goal there is to make sure that so-and-so, Alexis Paulson, who's on the podcast today, no one knows the name Alexis Paulson, healthcare worker in Tennessee, fighting to keep her children and the children of the Republican you know, politicians alive and away from gun violence in Tennessee. Like I want the Priyanka fans to know Alexis Paulson. Like that's mm. why I do it. But it is, 
obviously it's fun to talk to these people. And I have some great, I have some great shows coming up that are with other, you know, well-known people. It's fun. Yeah. It's been, it's been a blast. 258 episodes. Yeah. Cool stuff. So I'm, so I'm kind of curious what you you say that you're uh, thinking about community in a different way right now. And you gave a couple of thoughts there. Um, when, you know, when people start like really taking some of some of the impetus of what you're caring about their communities or people, you know, what does that look like? Uh, I, I, cause I'm, I'm a community builder. I always have, you know, I was a church planter. I helped plant churches around the country, around the world. Um, and I'm still, I'm still building community myself. Right. And I'm also rethinking community through, through new lenses. And, uh, and yeah, I'm curious, where, where do you see that going from, from where you're at right now? Like if you, cause you, you just said, have I wasted my last six years? Of course you haven't, but what, what would the next three or four years look like based on these thoughts that you have about community? That's a great question. And everything I say right now is going to be very, <laughs> very like ill, you know, formulated because I'm just now thinking about a lot of this based on, yeah, not just the conversation with Baratunde, but other conversations I've had with mentors recently. I think one of the things that would change, honestly, if I, if, if my, my knee jerk reaction is to stop basically everything I'm doing and just focus on building the community. I'll tell you why right now, but I'm, I'm so, I have so many other things going on. The, the consulting, the coaching, the speaking, the speaking definitely can be community building, but there's all these, like even the pitching TV shows, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to build a real genuine, robust community by putting, you know, by Netflix, picking up a show that I do someday, like that'll, that'll uh, spread awareness about let's give a damn and what I'm doing. But I really think one of my favorite parts of the conversation with Baratunde that I listened to yesterday was him talking about how Barack Obama indirectly taught him about community back in, you know, when he was doing his campaign leading up to the 2008 election. Barack was the reason that people were gathering, right? They they wanted to see Barack become president. It was so exciting to think about Barack being our first black president, right? So that's why people initially came. He's charismatic. He was bringing people around this idea of, you know, yes, we can. And this idea of we could be, this could be the first black presidency. Like there was so much hope and so much joy, but that wasn't community. People just rallying around Barack Obama's not community. The real community was Barack actually, he still had to do his campaign and do the talks and whatever. But Baratunde talks about how during that year of campaigning, of canvassing, of meeting other, of meeting other people online and in person, that they would go around and knock doors and leave flyers. The real community happened when they started doing stuff with each other and for each other that that had nothing to do with Barack Obama's presidency or the potential presidency. They started uh dreaming together, him and random strangers that he would meet that were also on the campaign trail. They started coming up with their own uh, dreams and ways to, you know, maybe, maybe this law, maybe this thing, how can we get uh, 
you know, energized and get people going in our communities. They live states apart and they started dreaming and forming. So no, it was no longer about Barack Obama. It was no longer about 2008 campaign. It was now about these two people, these three, five, seven people that were meeting each other in person or online. Initially, it was about Obama. And now it was about what are we going to do together? And so what I, the, the way that I'm thinking about that with Let's Give a Damn is I have built, there's, there's, you can build a community or you can build an audience. I've built an audience. I'm not saying it's only one, one direction. I do get feedback. You mentioned Howard, an amazing 80-year-old retired doctor that lives in Colorado. He listens to every podcast and every single week he sends me feedback. And Howard's not unique. I get that. I get that in DMs. I get that in emails. I get that in text. So it's it's not a one-way street, but it's still not a community because I have not built mechanisms, built a structure so that these people, because my ultimate goal, I don't give a shit if they ever listen to me again. That's not the goal. I'm not the primary thing here. I want people to go out there and live today as if it's their last day on earth. I want them to take every opportunity and run with it. I want them to see I want them to think about death every day and the 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 fact that we could die today and it, since we might die today, let's go help people. Let's go love people. I want them to start doing that all on their own and I haven't created mechanisms for them to connect, for them to get into each other's lives, for them to do that work all on their own because I can't I can't show up every day and keep like patting them on the back and encouraging them to keep going, right? That's impossible for me to do. I could do that for a few people, but not for the hundreds and of thousands that I want to impact in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So that's the real main thing, Fred, that I'm seeing is like, I've created an audience and it's great. And I love it. And people seem to want and need what I'm sort of bringing to the table, but I'm not happy with that. If I have a TV show and a top podcast and a lot of money five years from now, but I don't, and I haven't built true community, I will have failed, I think. So I'm I'm sort of like going back to the drawing board. Maybe I pitch the TV shows less. Maybe I, uh, you know, pull back on the consulting or the coaching where I only get to impact a few at a time. And I need to just focus on, that's not bad, impacting a few at a time. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to go further. I want to go deeper. I want to create mechanisms. I don't know what that is. It's an app. It's a platform. I don't know what that is yet but I need to figure out how to, to allow people to self-actualize, to self-organize in this work of giving a damn. And I haven't done that very well okay. yet. Okay. So this, this, this is probably our last question, but um, like if you had to, and I, I kind of hinted at this when we were uh, in uh, at the wild goose festival, if you had to pick three or four or five issues that would be your top and it could just be one, two or three, but however many three, five, the number doesn't matter that you feel like are like some of the most important issues on our planet today for people to give a damn about what, what, what would, what would the, your, some of your top issues be that you would, if you could mobilize people to give a damn about X, Y, and Z, what would they, what would be some of your top, top issues? I'll give two. Okay. And I think they're the most important ones. Number one is I want people 
people need to figure out how to be around people they don't agree with and have hard, important conversations and not try to force their way of life and their beliefs on other people. Forcing anyone to do anything doesn't work. Even trying to persuade someone to change what they believe and to head in a different direction also doesn't work. Very, very, very rarely. What does work is modeling for people what it looks like to live the good life. Showing people, yes, I know we have to speak up. Yes, I know I'm not opposed. In fact, I'm very, I do it a lot. I'm not opposed to making people feel uncomfortable if I think that they're doing something wrong and harmful. But I see my role, I see all of our roles as we are harm reducers. So whether it's the food we eat or the ways we get from point A to point B, how we travel, the clothes we wear, the, the, big, the big issues in society, I believe we're all should be, we all should be trying to reduce as much harm as possible. We live in a, we live in a world, there's a lot of crazy shit going on, so we can't eliminate harm. Very rarely can we eliminate any kind of harm, but we can reduce it. And the reducing harm is going to come by modeling for people instead of trying to push our beliefs on other people. So that is a that is kind of an overarching big thing that I give a damn about that I want people to give a damn about because that's where it all starts because you can care about the climate, you can care about supporting the queer community, you can care about uh gun safety, you can care about all of these things, but if you go about it wrong and you just get on Twitter and you keyboard warrior your way into arguments with trolls and you get you get on your bully pulpit and you just scream at people about how horrible they are and how wrong and backward they are that convinces no one um so essentially what i'm saying is like peer pressure like we got to become way better at peer pressuring people by modeling what the good life looks like to help people change so that's number one number two is an issue and that is the issue of climate change. I believe we are in a climate emergency. It is absurd to me for anyone to push back on that, not because I said it, but because we are very clearly in a climate emergency. The weather patterns are off the charts crazy. We keep experiencing hotter summer after hotter summer. There are weather events we just had the first one in 90 years, first, uh, you know, hurricane off the West Coast, very common, you know, in Florida and South Carolina and Georgia, completely rare and uncommon in, you know, places like California. We have all of these weather events that are happening that very clearly show that we are in a climate emergency. So the reason I believe this is the most, if we're going to name one issue, that working on the climate crisis is the most important, because if if I, if my children and their children don't have a habitable planet to live on, it doesn't matter what you think about guns or about queer people or about racism. It doesn't matter. None of those matter. Not one other issue matters if we can't live on the planet that the universe and God has so graciously gifted us. So we've got to, along with the other issues that we care about, please care about all the things. But along with that, you have to figure out what your role in slowing down this climate crisis is. And the most important ways that we can contribute to that are not using paper straws. It's not even to recycle. It's not any of that stuff. Most of the damage being done to our climate is being done by 
megalomaniacs, billionaires, people in power that run companies that don't give a shit about our planet. They're doing it at a massive scale. The deforestation happening in the Amazon right now. Our planet cannot keep up with the 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 fast pace of the deforestation happening in places around the world. Those are the things. So we're talking about voting. We're talking about uh, working at, on electing people that do give a damn, that do give a damn about our climate crisis. Yes, make the changes in your own life. I'm vegan mostly because of the climate, actually. I'm not saying don't do those things, but I'm saying we got to figure out the most effective ways in our lifetime to slow the climate crisis. And along with that, listen to anything that Bill McKibben has to say. Bill is a legend in the climate space. He'll be on the podcast soon. Um, but yes, we 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 don't have much time left. And I don't want to live in, on a planet where we've made a lot of progress when it comes to gun reform, but we can't actually live here. Like that's 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 a wild future yeah. to to picture. So those are the two issues that I would bring up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. My gosh. Yeah, I, I loved hearing Bill McKibben out at the film festival and at Wild Goose. Um, and uh, man, so challenging. I'm trying to figure out how, you know, just with this this new community that I am pastoring, how can yeah. I uh, integrate that into, you know, conversation and challenging people with with uh, with that kind of worldview i think a lot of people just yeah they don't realize the crisis we're in um not at and, all uh, so well good stuff man nick thank you so much i've enjoyed connecting with you getting to know you hearing your passion um i love the fact that you're uh you're you're still hanging in there with uh with some of the jesus crowd <laughs> i am i'm trying fred i'm trying <laughs> And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, my story, I, I really felt, I spent a lot of months feeling like an atheist and questioning everything I'd ever believed and have been reemerging in a lot of different ways myself, but still kind of hung on to Jesus and, and, uh, still, still care about the planet, the world, still love people. I, I love the no harm idea, you know, living our lives in ways that we can, uh, not do harm to one another, not do harm to the planet. And I love, love period, you know, and I know you've been, yeah, you've been hanging out a little bit with uh, Jackie Lewis at middle church yep. and man, if we could do no harm, love period. And influence the world changes, people. man. If we do those. Like yeah. hundred percent. Absolutely. I'm, I'm on board. So I'm thankful for the connection we've had. Thanks for coming on spirituality adventures for those of you who made it to the end thanks so much um i'd encourage you if you haven't already joined our team our patreon team support team go to spiritualityadventures.com uh check that out become a part of our support team i did a, we had a great uh interview prior to this uh that we put out of bonus content and had some fun some fun insights into nick's life as well so Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick, for being a part of this. And I hope to see you before the end of this year in person sometime. So thank you for inviting me. And yes, before the end of this year, come to New York. We'll we'll treat we'll you right. Around. You'll have to. I don't smoke that many cigars, but I'll walk around and smoke a cigar with you just just to just to just to hang out. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> All right. 
All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Nick. Have a great day. Tell Rod and, uh, and Doug Paget I said hello tonight. I will. Peace to you and peace to all. Take care. See you next time, everybody. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.